Support for this podcast is brought to you by Disney and Pixar's Elemental. Awards Watch raves, Elemental burns bright with Pixar's signature blend of vibrant, revolutionary animation and imagination. Disney and Pixar's Elemental, now awards eligible in all categories for your consideration. Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. I write about filmmaking craft for IndieWire. My guests today are director Yorgos Lanthimos and actor-producer Emma Stone, whose latest collaboration is one of my favorite movies of the year, Poor Things. Lanthimos and Stone were nominated for Oscars for their first pairing, The Favorite, and Poor Things is even funnier, more moving, and more original. We talked about their collaboration, the benefits of a stripped-down set even for an epic, and the challenges of editing such a unique movie, among other things. Here's the conversation. Well, Yorgos, obviously at this point... Uh-oh. <laughs> Sound speed, everyone settle, please. Oh my God. That's what they do on a set. <laughs> Sorry. Well, so Yorgos, obviously at this point, Emma is, you know, a pretty important collaborator of yours. At what point in the process for Poor Things do you bring her in? I mean, like, how early did she come in and what were your initial conversations like? Were you ta- Was there a, a script yet? Was it just the book? Um, it was around the time that we uh, were making the favorite or uh, uh, after we uh, finished filming. Uh, that we spoke about it. I I already had read the novel tell, 10, 12 years ago, so it was always in my mind. But at that point, we had started uh, writing the screenplay with Tony McNamara. Uh, and we had such a good time making the favorite and filming uh, in, in London. And after we finished, I decided to mention it to her uh, but I don't think I knew that it was going to be the next project. I think we talked about other stuff that I was developing as well, and poor things came up as w- as well. And um, yeah, I think Emma jumped on that as soon as he heard the the premise. And uh, yeah, when the script was ready, I I gave it to her, and yeah, and started from there. Mm-hmm. Well, why did you jump on the premise? I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious now looking at the finished film because it's an incredible movie and it's an incredible role, but I can't imagine what it sounded like or looked like on paper. I mean, it sounded as um, as wild as you could probably imagine in a couple of sentences, but uh, I think it was I think it was him describing, well, first of all, I, I just loved working with him on The Favorite, so that was like number one. And then secondly, the, you know, the kind of journey of this woman basically from scratch until adulthood, um, all within the same body and development and the way that men in the world are affected by her and the way that she affects her outer world. All of that just sounded really, really fascinating to me and really exciting to me. Um, yeah, I got, I got pretty obsessed with the idea pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to ask about for both of you, the collaboration with Robbie Ryan, because I love the look of this movie, obviously, and I love the look of the favorite too. And I guess Yorgos, to start with you, um, in what ways, what did you and he see as the kind of guiding principles for the visual style of the movie? And like, in what ways did you want to sort of continue the kinds of things you'd been doing on the favorite? And in what ways did you want to maybe strike out in some other directions? Yeah. So 
we started certain things on the favorite. I had certain ideas that uh, I wanted to explore. So what we do with Robbie is um, do a series of tests with you know either lenses, film stocks, uh, camera movements. Uh, we try to do that uh, as much as possible on the location or on on the set that we're going to be filming, and hopefully uh, with an actor or you know, stand in at first, and then the actors. Um, and we start, you know, zeroing in in what it is that we like and what we think, you know, will work for for each film. And we kind of set up a set of rules, like we like these lenses, so we're going to be using these lenses. We're going to be doing like extreme close-ups or not, or uh, we're going to be doing the wide-angle uh, shots with these kind of lenses and have the people be very small in the frame, you know, those kind of things. Um, and I think, um, you know, we we enjoyed, you know, working like that on The Favourite and... Uh, starting poor things, which is quite different in the sense that it's the first time that both Robbie and myself have made a film, uh, which is entirely, uh, which is in, on sets entirely built in a studio. So a lot of lighting before we, all of my films have been shot with uh, natural light and practical lights, uh, including the favorite. Um, so that was a, a departure. So that was the first thing that changed. But what we tried to do uh, was was we, we tried to kind of re- retain the same approach. Like we said that, okay, it's st- it's a bigger film. There's a lot of people. There's all these huge sets. But you know, why don't we pre-light everything and then you know when or when we're inside, we'll light everything from outside and practical lights. So then we would. Again, just focus on you know the the important stuff. It will just be the camera, the actors, the AD, the focus puller, and sometimes the the boom operator for sound. Sometimes we would even rig the mic. So that enabled us to work the same way that we were working before, like very few people on set, and just Robbie operating the camera and moving it around, and just keep on uh, filming and figuring things out and experimenting. And so what's that like for you, Emma, as an actress, um, those kinds of circumstances where it's pre-lit and, you know, as Jorgos is saying, like there's fewer people. I mean, I'm assuming it's probably somewhat freeing, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it was very important to feel that this was, you know, an intimate experience no matter how big, you know, these sets were and and the amount of kind of lighting and crew that was required to, to execute all of this. So... I mean, we we don't have marks. We don't, you don't say action. Uh, it's very kind of. It, if there's no video village. He's sitting, you know, with his monitor right by the camera. Um, so it feels as small and as kind of intimate as humanly possible in the midst of this experience. And I think a lot of that has to do with like pre, you know, everything is sort of happening in advance. We don't have stand-ins. No, during the filming, During no. filming, we don't have stand-ins. So you're kind of like in there. If they need to light something differently, you're, you're in there and, you know, you don't really leave set. Um, so it stays very, it stays very intimate all throughout. And that's, yeah, I mean, that, that was, it was that way with natural light in real environments. And it felt that way still with these, with these huge sets and, and artificial light. 
Well, the performances in the movie are all fantastic. I mean, especially I thought Ruffalo was just hilarious and um, and Defoe is great. I mean, everybody's really good. So in pre-production, Yorgos, what kinds of discussions are you having with the actors to try to help them, you know, build their characters? Or do you, are you the kind of director, do you like to do a lot of rehearsal or no rehearsal? What's what's going on before you get to the set? Yeah, there's not much discussion. There's We, we try to do rehearsals, uh, which is not necessarily traditional that we mainly just you know play games and do exercises and just have fun and um try to entertain each other and uh make the actors feel comfortable with with each other and get to know one another um so that's that's quite a, an important part of the process and during that process uh they can feel free to experiment with her characters to try things and not feel self-conscious about it um try uh physical uh stuff so that they start figuring out each their character so it's more practical it's a more practical approach than you know sitting down and discussing about the characters and the uh and each different you know aspect of it well, you know, I mean, the tone of the movie is so cool and so unusual. I mean, it's really, you know, hilarious and fantastical, but also kind of poignant. And, you know, I'm curious, Emma, for you and the other actors, I mean, how, you know, how much work is there sort of getting that tone right and calibrating that? Or is it kind of dictated by the script? I mean, is it something that was clear from the beginning? Um, I think definitely so much of that is is in the script and in the kind of you know general conceit of the of the world but uh I think you know tonally it it is a combination of you're sort of in this environment that's been so it's so detailed and so built with the production design the costumes are very specific and and um tell so much of the story especially you know, in my case for Bella, the way that the costumes sort of evolve as time goes on uh, really helps to understand. And then ultimately it's about about him, about Yorgos and and trust, you know, that he has the the sort of reins of keeping the tone in a certain place and that he's able to kind of gauge it because there's nothing better than to be free and experimenting and like trying things like for instance and willem has said this before about mark's performance but when we were in rehearsals we are playing all these games but we're also kind of like going through the scenes and willem was like he said to me he was like we're in those rehearsals i mark's doing this crazy shit and i was like what the fuck is this gonna be? This is so over the top, but he's just playing around in rehearsal. But he did it in the movie, and it worked. It's incredible. I was like, I know. It's like you can, but you have that freedom to like go as far as you want to go, or rein it in, or whatever it is. And you know, some of the things that are happening in rehearsal or from take to take is gonna shift and change as time goes on. So you're really trusting Yorgos, and also, also Blackfish, the editor, who's edited all of of Yorgos's films. Um, to kind of find that that world in you know in the aftermath of it, because I would say a lot of that happens there too in the edit, right? Indeed. Ah, uh. yeah. Talk, yeah. Talk a little bit about the editorial process and how tricky it is on a movie like this. Um, 
it's you know as tricky as any film um i've 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 been fortunate to be working with the same editor for all of my films uh so um you know we've developed a certain uh code and la- language ourselves but the great thing is that um but you know by now he's learned a, a lot of the things that i like but also in terms of uh, actors performances and uh it, it is very helpful for me to see the first you know cuts that he does uh because it's already you know I know that he's probably chosen already the best takes uh, uh most of the times and then um it it becomes easier to try different things out and experiment with structure and you know see the scenes in a different way rather than saying okay let's start from the beginning and let's see all the takes and um and of course you know when something doesn't work then you know we will go and you know watch all the takes and um deconstruct the scene and start over and um but um yeah it, it's it's very helpful to have someone that you can trust that will you know be very much in in line and in sync with you know your um perception about the material and 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 the film well and Emma what's your role as a producer what's your role during the editorial process are you involved are you weighing in on cuts or anything like that I am, um, I think, well, I saw it very early. I saw it really early on, the first, like, full version, I believe, that you had. And then I saw it shift and change a bit. I There wasn't really that much to, to add to this because it was so kind of, like, robust and what it is from the first cut that I saw, that I saw, um, because they had combed through it for, for quite a while before that. So, um. I don't know. I gave like a couple of ideas, but overall it was, it just kind of was what it was. And I was, you know, in love with it, what I saw. Um, But Bella very specifically, or this project very specifically, I think I have such an extreme emotional attachment to that. um, I think it was just like to go along on her journey and see it again. I don't know that I was necessarily useful in in post in that way. (laughs) Um, Well, both of you have brought up the production design a lot, and I wanted to ask a little bit. First of all, I was curious, Yorgos, where the idea came from to use two production designers, and what was the collaboration or division of labor like between the two of them? Well, I guess the idea was was that I couldn't decide on one. well, it, it felt that, you know, it felt such a, a unique and specific uh, undertaking from the beginning. So, uh, and I, from even from the moment I read the novel, I knew that I wanted to create this world uh, for Bella to inhabit so that it's a world that it's, it, it kind of reflects um her individuality and uniqueness and reflect the way she perceives the world and see uh reacts to it so i knew it was going to be we were going to be looking to make something unlike you know anything else but at the same time using very traditional old school techniques um because the idea was we would build everything in a studio even exteriors uh, so that everything would feel handmade and uh, 
um, tactile and have you know all these textures and um, painted backdrops and skies and you know all those elements. So trying to you know figure out who could do this, I, w- I would I would you know just see you know people with very different sensibilities. So. At some point, I, I I decided that maybe it would be, would be an interesting idea to pair pe- two people uh, together and see how that goes. And because we had uh, a bit of time uh, before we started filming to put together a production design team so they can do research and initial ideas, d- design initial um, uh, sets, uh, we did exactly that. I, I I found you know Shona and James. Well, I didn't find them. I, I you discovered them. Right? Yeah, it was two people that I was interested in in working with. So, you know, we proposed to them whether it would be if they would be interested in doing this thing together because they come from so different backgrounds uh, and they have so different sensibilities that I thought that you know their combination might bring out something uh, unique. Uh, and and that's what happened. They they started working together uh, for a trial period and coming up with things. And I, you know, they got along really well. And I was liking, you know, all the stuff that was being produced. So we we continued down that road. And yeah, James is was his second uh, uh, job as a production designer. He's he, he had worked a lot in as an art director in. Uh, quite a few big films in the UK, uh, but Shona had never made a film before. Uh, so uh, it was, yeah, it was a very interesting combination that produced what you eventually see. Well, what were your kind of guiding principles for the production design in terms of how much you wanted the movie to be tethered to reality? I mean, it's like, did you want to just create a completely fantastical world? Were there some real world reference points that you had? I think the aim was to ma- to build a world that feels feels familiar, and you kind of sense that it's a certain period, but then introduce all these elements that allow you to be freed by this convention, the period, uh, the Victorian period, or whatever that is, um, and and try to achieve a balance that would allow you to. Uh, engage and kind of believe this unbelievable story uh, but also be consistent with the fact that you know this is you know kind of out of this world this is not something that can you know happen every day Um, so I think we were always trying to, to strike that balance and you know we did it in various ways with um, creating a world that has a lot of depth so that it's it doesn't feel, you know, one-dimensional. Uh, and then we would make decisions on, you know, case by case, in case by case, uh, you know, the, lo- the different locations where they travel, the, the boat that she travels with, you know, it was all slightly different approaches for each particular situation so that we would achieve that kind of balance between something that feels... Um, you know, kind of artificial, but uh, artful, and um, uh, but also um, you know believable in, in some way. 
And were you doing all of that with kind of old school techniques with like matte paintings and things like that? Or were there was there any modern technology that you brought in to integrate with it as well? It was a combination. I mean, everything that's in the film was, you know, cr created by us, was made by us and shot. But uh, sometimes we would uh, composite things uh, in, in post-production. So we used min miniatures, for example. Uh, we we used an LED screen on the boat, but we had, you know, uh, created the background from before. Um we we did a lot of uh, set extensions because uh, although the 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 sets were huge, uh, we were still using uh, such wide angle lenses that we would still see you know the the ceiling and the lights outside the set. So we had to um, uh, extend them in post production, but all of it was already designed. Uh, and you know, pictures were taken uh, from sets. They, the sets were scanned, uh, so we would have the actual texture of what we had already created in order to use technology to enhance it. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to jump back. Emma brought up the costumes, and I wanted to ask both of you a little bit about working with um, Holly Waddington because I do love the way that the costumes kind of illustrate, um, you know, Bella's transformation as she kind of becomes more of a member of society, you know, so to speak. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what the, what kind of conversations you had with her about the sort of, I guess, story you were trying to tell through the costumes. Yeah. Well, I mean, with my interaction with Holly was similar, you know, with production design, we're, we're trying to come up with something that felt appropriate for the, for the tone of this film. So, we knew that we would look at the period, but we would like to put a twist on it. Um, and to be honest, in the beginning, I, I had in my mind uh, a lot more uh, scul sculptural costumes uh, that we kind of uh, researched a little bit. But um, when we actually tried it on, you know, uh, on people <laughs> and especially on the actors, it was obvious that it would be kind of um inhibitive in in their performance and even you know just in their uh motion <laughs> in general uh so um we try to kind of maintain the idea by using uh interesting contemporary fabrics while retaining the shapes of of the period and not necessarily traditional shapes of the period but uh, still, it was it was things that we saw that existed. They weren't necessarily the most common things, like all those huge sleeves uh, that you see. And um, I think the other aspect of it was how the 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 costumes were put together, uh, and especially for Bella. And I think that's uh, that was more something that uh, Holly and Emma uh, worked on. Uh, mostly when they were doing the fittings and were they were trying to come up with the evolution of her uh, wardrobe and how it follows her journey, uh, they played around a lot with how they put uh, the costumes together. Yes, that everything he says is true. Uh, we we spoke a lot about in the beginning of you know the film. Mrs. Prim is dressing Bella. She's being taken care of by an adult. You know, and so she's sort of fully dressed. Like even when we go out to the, she had these great, very uh, 
adorable childish kind of ideas like when we go out to the the park for the first time when Bella wants to leave and we go to the park she had you know these white leather gloves on a string around my neck that went through the jacket like like you would with a kid that's you know wearing like their winter gloves so they don't lose them and um, everything was very quilted and kind of padded. There was like a silk house coat that was white, which you would never put someone that's in this like, you know, mind state in, in white silk. But because they kind of keep her as this, you know, safe, coddled thing in their house, that's what she would wear when they're putting her in that. And then once she can travel, she, you know, says to Duncan, like, or she says to Mrs. Prim, but about her travel hat. So I saw that as, you know, when she's going out, she wants to put her hat on because that is dressing up for traveling. And then, you know, she wears knickers because she knows she needs to wear something on the bottom and she knows she has to wear shoes or it'll hurt. It's all very kind of literal in the way that she's dressing herself um, from her understanding. And then it sort of evolves from there into much more structured, you know, coats and less color, more black and white and gray and, um, as she is, you know, moving further and further beyond the brothel, kind of into socialism and uh, surgery and, and coming back to being a doctor, she starts to dress more that that part, but because she's empowered to do it, not because she's trying to kind of assimilate in, in whatever way. So and also her exposure to all these places, you know, living in Paris or, uh, you know, seeing all of these things that she hadn't seen before as she's kind of rapidly evolving. So. Holly had so many amazing kind of ideas and, and details in that. And, you know, like one of the, the, the wedding dress is my favorite costume I've ever worn. It's so beautiful because it's so many different aspects of Bella within one thing. It's sheer. You can see the knickers underneath. It has those really bulbous sleeves and this amazing net that's kind of on her face. And to me, that sort of encapsulates like every stage of her journey in one costume. Um, and the what Holly called the condom cape, which is a fully latex cape that Bella wears in Paris before she goes to work in the brothel. But, you know, that latex, like what it's saying about where she is and what she's moving into, I thought was really amazing. And so many of the fabrics were like organs, like human organs, um, inspired by kind of Baxter and, and his surgery. And um, yeah, so she, she was really amazing. And all of it is just so gorgeous to see up close. And how important is the collaboration with Nadia Stacy in creating your character? For for me it's it was it was hugely important. Nadia and we worked together we worked with Nadia on the favorite and I worked with her on Cruella. So this was my my third time working with her and um you know Cruella had a lot of different, you know, hair and makeup looks and so we really were so kind of in in tandem throughout that whole shoot uh so going into this it, it's simpler you know Bella doesn't wear any makeup um her hair grows and grows and that was kind of stitching hair into my head every day to make it longer and longer um but other than that it was that that it was sort of the simple process for Bella and you know when she has a braid when she doesn't and how long her hair is essentially but what she needed to do with you know creating Rami and Mark and especially Willem uh, in the prosthetics and and everything that he's been through was definitely you know a huge a huge part of the process for her and the prosthetics designer and um, yeah there was a lot to 
a lot to think about for her, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I love the look of Willem's character. Can you talk a little bit, Yorgos, about how you arrived at that? Yeah, that was uh, that was quite a long process with a lot of trial and error. Um, I, I, everybody kind of uh, contributed to that. Like we were looking at um, a variety of references from you know, uh, real photographs of uh, men uh, injured in the war to uh, abstract paintings. Uh, and I, I remember I was kind of obsessed with this uh, Francis Bacon uh, painting. It, I think it's a self-portrait, uh, which was the one that kind of most represented how I, I was imagine him to look, but at the same time, it's kind of abstract. So it was difficult for them to kind of translate what that is. And he has to move and uh, yeah. act within it. So, you know, with with the, those kind of guys, we just starting out, started like doing, you know, drawings and uh, Photoshop pictures of him and then, uh, you know, molds and, yeah, just trying out to see um, what it looked like and, um, you know, trying to stay away from anything too uh, rational because what had happened to him was you know, probably just experiments that his, you know, father was doing and not like one specific accident or anything like that. So it had to, you know, all of these uh, scars and operations would have to kind of feel like they were abstract as well. I think maybe that's the reason why I was so drawn to, you know, this painting. Um, I guess I want to finish up by talking a little bit about the music and the sound. Um, you're working with Johnny Byrne, who I know you've worked with many times before, and he's, you know, in my opinion, one of the great sound designers there is. So um, talk a little bit about the approach to the sound, working with him, and also what the thinking was with the music, because, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you usually don't use scores, right? Yeah, it's the first time that I I finally got to work with a composer, which so I guess um yeah. Um yeah, Johnny's obviously, you know, his work speaks uh for itself. Uh but yeah, on this one, I think we we started having conversations early on before we we filmed anything and you know, we didn't know whether we because I told him, you know, the idea was that we were going to build everything in a studio, so there was going to be some kind of artificiality, so there wouldn't be any actual uh, ambient sounds. Um, so uh, the challenge was, or the question, I guess, was whether we wanted to make the film sound more realistic and kind of go against, you know, what the visuals of the film are, or if we wanted to kind of follow that and make it feel even more uh, kind of uh, artificial and constructed. And, but, you know, then we went away, we started filming and editing and all that stuff. And then Johnny comes again, kind of at the end of the process. And I also, because I've worked with him uh, so many times, I also, it's very similar to Blackfish, to, to my editor that, you know, I just let him do what he does. And then, you know, we sit down and listen to something which he has produced, which is, you know, pretty far uh, progressed. Uh, so what he did was basically, I think, arrive to a, a kind of mix or combination of the two. So 
you know he he uses uh, some examples when now he speaks about the film like he he says like for example the you know the sound of the boat is a heartbeat uh but you know it kind of does sound like a boat but he created through you know uh, an indirect way uh, and because of how the film looks and the the general tone of it i think you buy it even more that it's you know it's an actual boat sound um than a heartbeat but it does have that slight um element to it that it's not realistic so i think that's that's um how we approach it and 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 Jerskin uh Fendrix who's a composer um is is the first score he's ever written uh for for a film uh i heard his i listened to his first album um like a year i think before we started filming um and there was something in it although like if you listen to it it's not at all you know obvious that you know you would think of him for for a score like the one that we have in poor things but his work was so versatile and unique and his sound his compositions uh were so complex although it was a pop album uh i just found it so rich and so original uh that i felt you know that for some reason he might be finally the person that can uh can write music uh for my films uh and the way we worked and i don't know how other people do it but the way i did it before was that i always used music while i was editing so i had i was researching music and then using using it on the edit and I, I, after it worked then i couldn't change it so that's the, that's the reason why you know i couldn't work with a composer bef- because you know i had researched the music so much and worked so much with it during the edit that i managed to achieve this particular uh tone in in every scene that i i couldn't replicate it you know with with different music uh so what we did with Jerskin was we started writing he started writing uh music before we even started filming so we basically had the the score that we that we used was already pre-composed and pre-recorded so i used all of this music during the edit i of course i had to you know make cuts and you know move things around and then he would you know make them again better uh but the majority of the music was was composed beforehand and that was the way that i i managed to finally um work with a composer in one of my films and now we we're he's he's doing the music on we've shot another film with Emma and Willem and Margaret Qualley and other people in New Orleans uh and yeah and we're working with Jerskin again so yeah wow when's that coming out i don't know we're we're now in the process of editing that one while we're you know doing press for poor things Cool. Well, I I can't wait to see it cuz I loved this movie. I thought it was fantastic and uh I really appreciate both of you coming in and taking the time to talk with me. So Thank you very much. Thank you so much. <laughs>